Guys, grab, grab a Bible if you have one. Um, we, we don't have the text on the screen tonight. Um, you can obviously just listen along if you'd like. But I'm going to read uh, Psalm 91, which is a bit of a classic, I think. Certainly a favorite. Psalm 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For he, the Lord, will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrow that flies by day nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right side, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him or her my salvation. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your promises. Thank you for these words that you inspired. We can look to and find courage, hope, comfort when we need it the most. We're grateful. Help us now to process together and to leave here changed. In Jesus' name, amen. When I read those words, I'm immediately aware of my own sort of broad spectrum of emotions. I suspect that for some, for many, um, those words are truly uh, a source of hope and comfort. I suspect that for others, Maybe not so much. Perhaps you hear those words and 
it just stirs up emotion and reminds you of how hard reality actually is. And perhaps you struggle to, to reconcile uh, how these promises actually work out. How is this actually reality as we look to Jesus? And perhaps because of those reasons, you may not feel comforted at all. Uh, you may feel frustrated, perhaps even slightly indignant or someplace in between. You might be tempted to say to someone who hears the words and immediately just lightens up with, with, uh, with joy, with comfort, with a sense of, yes, it's going to be all right, and you think of that person, what is actually wrong with you? Are, are you? are you naive? Are you in denial? Are you just into wishful thinking? Or perhaps on the other side of things, you might look at the person who hears the words and, and, and is slightly put off by them and you think to yourself, uh, you call it wisdom, but that's just, just naturalistic doubt. Where is your faith in God? And we can easily sort of eye each other up and, and, and begin to very subtly uh, judge each other in our hearts. I don't know what kind of conversations you've had this week, but I, I've had a few that have left me feeling that very tension. Even the fact that we're gathering here tonight, I realize it's, and, and not to sound melodramatic, but this is, this is a bit controversial. I get that. Um, I think it's actually a very, very serious thing what we're doing here. I hope, God, I hope that this is, in fact, a very, very loving thing that we're doing and that we're doing it in a way that is both faith-filled and wise. I think it is. But I think, I think we can all feel that tension when we think about the reality of our situation, of the virus, of the data, the reports, the facts that are being distributed, and the fact that we are here to worship a king, a God-man who died and overcame death, who bore my sickness so that I can experience actual healing in this life and the one to come. And if that's not an actual real tension, I don't know what is. It's a beautiful paradox. You know, I was uh, at my grandma's funeral four days ago. And it, it was, I have three living, sorry, two living grandparents left. Um, losing my grandpa was difficult. I loved my grandpa. We weren't super close. He was, a, he was a very stern man, I'll put it that way. I was close to my grandma. I was very close to my grandma. And um, it was a very mixed range of emotions for me and my family this Wednesday. Uh, my mom, uh, who would have been my grandmother's daughter, asked me to, to share words to give the eulogy at the funeral. Um, 
And it was, it was very emotional. I would have been offended if you had yanked out some verse about death and losing its sting and, and something along those lines and just said, hey, here you go. Like, cheer up, bucko. You'll see her in heaven. Um, it would have been grossly insensitive and it would, it would have just, it would have been mean. Um, and yet at the same time, I believe the verse was read. There was another uh, older officiating pastor um, who in fact did quote that verse and I think he did a wonderful job and, and was able to contextualize it in a way that was quite appropriate and uplifting. And once again, I found myself in this tension where I knew that the appropriate and healthy feeling to feel was one of grief and sorrow and actually mourning the very real death of my grandmother. She died of, um, they called a man, a flesh-eating virus, uh, a necrotizing, uh, I wrote it down someplace, necrotizing something or other. She scratched her arm and she died a few weeks later. And she loved the Lord. She loved Jesus. And I honestly take genuine comfort in knowing that she's home. And I suspect that if she was given the option to come back, she'd say, nah, I'm home. (laughs) I'm home. They'll be all right. But there is a very real tension that on one hand, we can have very real hope. We can say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, you are our Lord who will deliver us from the snare of the fowler, like a hunter who's stalking a bird, waiting to pounce on his prey. We can say, Lord, you will cover us with your pinions. You will protect us. Your faithfulness is our shield and a buckler. We will not fear the terror of the night nor the arrows that fly by day, not even the pestilence that stalks in darkness. You are our shelter. You are our most high, our refuge. And we believe you when you say no evil shall befall us. Not even plague. And yet, there is a very real tension that we live in. I suspect whoever wrote this psalm, possibly Moses, possibly King David, they are absolutely dead. That's a real tension. We oftentimes... um, we'll hear this sort of back and forth talk around this tension to do with faith and wisdom. Faith and wisdom. We want to be faith-filled. We want to trust God and believe him when he says that he is for us and he's protecting us and he's with us. And we can, we can live in confidence and hope knowing that. And that's called faith. And yet the Bible also speaks 
uh, quite a bit about wisdom and how we don't walk with a presumptuous faith walking off cliffs thinking that somehow we can fly because we found a Bible verse to back it up. The God, the, the God of the Bible, in fact, instructs us that if we lack wisdom to ask him for it because we need it and he'll give us as much as we need without holding back. And so we hear this sort of talk, is it faith, is it wisdom? You have faith, I have wisdom. You went to church tonight, you must have faith. I care about the world, so I stayed home, I must have wisdom. And we create this sort of, what I would suggest is an unhelpful, unnecessary uh, dichotomy between these two things that are actually both good and necessary and I think need to be kept together. Not faith versus wisdom, but faith in wisdom. God gives us both. But I think there's more that we need to say about uh, this season that we're living in than just uh, faith and wisdom. I think there's a couple of more, a couple more words that uh, we would do well to ponder. They are motivation and vision. I want to say a couple of things about motivation and vision. First of all, motivation, I mean motivation as in like the motives of our hearts. Whether faith or wisdom Neither is inherently beneficial unless working through a motivation of love. Recently, I um, was reading an article. My wife's been sending me all the juicy articles. Actually, she's really good. She, she filters through all of like the bogus ones and mostly send, sends me BBC articles. Um, but I was reading one about um, a, a burger company who decided to, there's several restaurants who decided to close their, their dining room areas and just serve drive through only, which seems super wise. Um, although I'm, I struggle a little bit to believe that the burger joints are doing it merely out of the goodness of their hearts. They're really serious about their health. I reckon they should just stop selling burgers. I say that as a burger lover. But whether you're exercising faith or leaning more towards wisdom, hopefully the two together, neither one of those things is inherently good or caring unless it's being done in love. I want to say something about our motivation and I want you to just do your best to receive this because I find none of us ever, ever like having our motives questioned. But I want us to question our motives. I've caught myself thinking about why does it take a pandemic for me to all of a sudden be concerned about my neighbors at this level? Why does it take a crisis for me to all of a sudden become concerned about my fellow humans. 
I found myself talking about faith, talking about wisdom, talking about doing the right thing, and then thinking, how much of this is actually just motivated out of a place of self-preservation? Because I wasn't all that concerned a week ago, but now all of a sudden, everyone's concerned. To be sure, when it comes to the motives of our heart, we're all, we all have a mixture. I'm not saying we're all evil people who just actually deep down, if we're honest with ourselves, simply don't give a rip about the person sitting next to us. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that unless faith and wisdom is being worked out in love, it's really nothing more than sentiment at best or self-preservation at worst. In fact, the Apostle Paul writes explicitly in the book of Galatians that nothing's more important than faith working through love. And so that's a challenge for us. That is a challenge. As we uh, do our best to walk in faith, to trust that our God is good, that he's able, that he's faithful, that he's for us, that he is sti- still our healer and our rescuer. As we figure out what wisdom looks like in the context of all of that, and as we do our best to apply that in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our church, in our world, that we can do that out of a genuine place of love, with hearts full of compassion, that we would be motivated by genuine love for the people around us, and not merely call it faith in the name of self-preservation. That's a challenge. Jesus said in John 15 that there is no greater love than this, than to lay your life down for a brother or a sister, for another. That's what love looks like. And what a vision. How do faith and wisdom expressing themselves through loving action help tell the grand, eternal, redemptive story of God. If in fact we're living out our lives, applying faith, applying wisdom, asking God to fill our hearts with his love that we might Love like he loves, that we might defer to one another, bear with one another, serve one another, put one another's interests before our own, lay down our lives for one another just like God in Christ did for us. Let's say we get that much almost right by the grace of God. What of the grand story of God's redemptive narrative? What about the story that he's been telling from the beginning? What about the story that's being told even when a loved one passes on. What exactly did Paul mean when he wrote to the Colossians saying to live is Christ, but to die is gain? 
What is that all about? Is God still faithful? Are his promises still true? Is the story still told even if people do die? It's because people have died and people will die. We must speak plainly. You know, this is what makes trusting Jesus such a peculiar way of life. And it is a very peculiar way of life. We build hospitals. We build orphanages, shelters, food banks. But God's vision for human wholeness transcends this life. At the end of the day, we know that everything will fade and only God's word will remain. We know that this life is only the beginning of the eternal life that Jesus has saved us for. And so what does faith and wisdom at work in love look like in the context of that peculiar story? You know, Jesus... Um, you might recall Jesus was in a desert being tempted by the devil. You ever hear that story? We've, been actually, we've actually been talking about spiritual warfare. And um, it's, I think it's told in all the Gospels, or at least, at least the three synoptic Gospels. Jesus, after his baptism, is led by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tempted by Satan, God's enemy and ours, for 40 days. Fast for 40 days, and he's led out into the desert to be tempted. And the enemy tempts him in a few different ways, but the final temptation is this. He takes Jesus and somehow leads him all the way up to the very pinnacle of the temple. And he says, if you really are who you think you are, throw yourself down. And then he quotes Psalm 91, verse 11. The devil quotes Psalm 91, verse 11. He says, throw yourself down if you are the son of God, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And what does Jesus do? He doesn't fall for it. It tells us something about the nature of God's promises tells us something about how we should actually take God at his word and do that in faith and walk it out in wisdom with hearts that are full of love like Jesus who didn't presume upon God's promises but knew how to trust him in the right time, in the right way and in a way that actually aligned with the story that God was telling not the one the world was telling, not the one that the enemy was trying to hijack, but God's great story of redemption. And so he didn't fall for it. He didn't throw himself down. Did he doubt? No. Just keep reading the story. It wasn't for lack of faith. Was it just that Jesus was being extra wise in the moment he thought to himself, hmm, maybe I shouldn't do it. I don't know if this is like 
God's eternal wisdom at work here. I think any one of us would have like assessed the situation and thought, yeah, maybe not today. There's something else going on in that moment. You see, we, we do well to rail against death, to reject death, to protest death with all of our might. Yet when our appointed time comes, we face death with hope. Because we are God's children. We are his people of the resurrection life. And here's, here's a key. Here's a key. As we navigate the tension of this moment, trusting that God is our refuge, that he is our healer, that these words aren't just like something ripped off of a Hallmark card. As we do that with all of the wisdom that God gives us, as we apply those things with the very love that God pours into our hearts, the motivation of our Father. As we do all of that, we understand that his promises are ultimately fulfilled, not merely in this life, but in eternity to come. Because in fact, Jesus eventually did throw himself down and he was raised up. Eventually, Jesus did fully entrust himself into the hands of his Father. In the garden, he didn't want to do it. He railed against death. He prayed. He sweat drops of blood. He cried out and he said, Father, if there's any other way, don't let it happen. I don't want to do it. He knew to reject death, to protest God's greatest enemy. He knew that death wasn't the plan. And yet he died because he knew that ultimately God's promises would be fulfilled in this promise of resurrection life. This Friends, this is a peculiar way of life. We face the turmoil. We face the, the uncertainty of health, policy, worldwide pandemics, and bombs, and job security, and everything else not with presumption, but with hope. Not with the motivation to simply preserve my little life in the here and now, but with the grand story of God's eternal redemption in mind, knowing that no matter what happens, whether I live or die, to live is Christ, but even if I should die, I go home. And we have hope. We have hope. Jesus didn't do it because he lacked faith or he was simply applying practical wisdom. He had an eternal vision in mind and a heart so full of love that he was willing to die 
for us. Now, I don't suspect I've resolved any tension, but I do hope that I have reminded us of this wonderful, paradoxical, hope-filled, peculiar way of life that Jesus has called us to. That faith is not in competition with wisdom. And that we can do these things well. And by well, I mean like our Savior. Not just to survive, but to truly bless one another even if it means laying down my own life, even if it means me setting aside my own preferences, that I might love others like I have been loved oh so, so well. And that we can do that with sheer, unadulterated hope, knowing that no matter what happens next, we are, we are the people of a resurrection life God's weird kids, a peculiar people. Amen. You're now listening to Grace City Portland.